History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor Cully, and welcome to The History of Persia, episode 43, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. First of all, I'd like to apologize for the delay in getting this episode together. We are in for a very lengthy and kind of esoteric topic. It's interesting, and I think you'll enjoy it, but it was hard to decide how to say some of this stuff and required a lot of new research for me. It's also coming out alongside a bevy of delayed Patreon content, which I'll say more about in a minute. First, though, some housekeeping. I want to remind everyone that there's a Q&A episode coming up to celebrate episode 50. Ask me any question you want about history, myself, or the podcast, and I'll answer them all in one big episode. You ask your question through any of the usual venues. Facebook and Instagram at the History of Persia Podcast, Twitter at History of Persia, through the website at historyofpersiapodcast.com, or by email to historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. Patreon patrons can also get in touch with me through comments or messages over there, and if you have a way to get to me on Reddit or Discord or something else, go ahead and ask away. Last time, we covered the last lingering aspects of Darius the Great's reign, 
his sweeping economic and administrative reforms. The tax rates, weights and measures, and even methods for record-keeping began to standardize or change during the reign of Darius. That set the stage for the administrative structure of the Achaemenid Empire in the generations to come. This time, we're going way back, long before the reign of Darius, before the rise of the Persian Empire, and even before the oldest supposed ancestor of the Achaemenid house. Today, we're headed back to the Bronze Age to discuss the life and times, and more importantly, the theology or beliefs of the ancient prophet Zoroaster. Normally, this would be ideal for a Patreon episode. It's out of our normal timeline and expands on something I've covered before, but several people have asked that I go into more direct detail on the life of Zoroaster and his actual beliefs, the beliefs expressed in the hymns called the Gathas that we know would have been influential by the time of the Persian Empire. So I do think it's worthwhile to include this in the regular feed. However, since this episode isn't going on Patreon, I still want to make something for subscribers and maybe draw some attention over there. So to accompany this episode, I'm starting a new series where I am going to read the entirety of the Gathas. Each month, I'm going to release one Gatha, in turn, from the L.H. Mills translation of the Yasna, the Zoroastrian liturgy. They will start under the $5 per month Great Kings tier, and then over time, they will become free and available to the public, but exclusively hosted on Patreon. While you're on Patreon checking out the Gothas series, I hope you'll look around and see what else I have to offer over there. There's ad-free listening, and more importantly, there's bonus episodes. So please head over to Patreon and check out this new ongoing project. You'll find episodes discussing the Bronze Age Collapse, the movie 300, and the Medes, among many other topics. This also gets me to how this is going to work today. Originally, Thus Spoke Zarathustra was supposed to be one episode on this topic. And that sounds like a great plan, until you realize that the script ended up being twice as long as my normal scripts. So, instead, this episode, episode 43, is going to release alongside the Gothas content on Patreon. Then, on the regular release date that would have been episode 44 anyway... You will get episode 44, and it will be the second half of this topic. At the same time, I will also release my long-pending Patreon project reviewing Dan Carlin's hardcore history episodes on the Kings of Kings and the Achaemenid Persian Empire, which is coincidentally another huge project that maybe shouldn't have overlapped with researching the Gothas. Now... It's actually been a while since the last time we talked about religion on this show. The first time I discussed religion was all the way back in episode 12, which I very creatively titled Iranian Religion. That episode addressed some Zoroastrian themes, but was mostly focused on the day-to-day -day cosmology of the supreme deity Ahura Mazda, surrounded by lesser divinities called the Yazadas, 
all upholding the divine order of the universe known as Asha, or Arta, and how all of this was opposed by an evil corrupting counterpart headed by the disparaging counter-god Angramanyu and a pantheon of false gods called Daiva. All of this was in order to disrupt Ahura Mazda's universe with the Droga, or Druge, a cosmic falsehood analogous to Asha's cosmic truth. Overall, that episode was pretty light on specific Zoroastrian information. It drew heavily on the Avesta, the Zoroastrian holy texts, but mostly because that is our best source for ancient Iranian religion more broadly. A little more recently, I came back to religion in episode 21, The Faith of the Magi. That episode focused more heavily on actual Zoroastrian beliefs and practices, as they may have appeared in the Achaemenid Empire. Unsurprisingly, both of these episodes were very popular and very controversial. Religion in general is fascinating and obviously a debated topic. And Achaemenid religious belief, in particular, is among the most heavily debated topics in ancient Iranian history. At the start of a few subsequent episodes, I even offered corrections and addendums to both of those topics. At the end of the day, it really is impossible to say anything certain about Achaemenid religion, as the Achaemenids themselves didn't say much about it. We know that every king following Darius I praised Ahura Mazda in his inscriptions, and that royal inscriptions intoned Ahura Mazda exclusively before the reign of Artaxerxes II. We also know from temple inscriptions, the Bible, the Cyrus Cylinder, and the Persepolis archives that the Achaemenids patronized temples devoted to other gods all over their empire. We know that Xerxes defeated an uprising in which an unknown city or province was condemned for worshipping deities the Persians considered diva, or false gods. We know that Darius used language derived from the word druge, divine lies and disorder, to describe the so-called liar kings at Behistun, and that many kings incorporated the word arta, divine truth and order, into their names. We know that the great kings were embalmed and placed in rock-cut tombs upon their deaths. And we know that some old Persian words seem to derive from the Avestan language. And that's just about all we know in terms of religion. From there, we have to speculate. On one hand, we have clear references to terminology and beliefs that appear in Zoroastrian scripture. On the other hand, we have clear contradictions from the form of royal patronage at the temples of Elamite gods in Parsa itself, not to mention supporting foreign temples. Then there are things like royal burials that don't fit neatly into either category. Modern Achaemenid scholarship seems to be drifting toward a popular consensus that Zoroastrian is the wrong word for the Achaemenids because they do not fit cleanly into Zoroastrian beliefs as presented in the Avesta or later documented traditions. Meanwhile, any scholarship on the history of Zoroastrianism will inevitably include the Achaemenids, 
and Zoroastrian communities are always fast to include Cyrus, Darius, and the rest among their own number. If we demand strict adherence to known Zoroastrian scripture, or even just the earliest Gothas attributed to the prophet Zoroaster himself, then the Achaemenids do not fit the mold. However, the Gothas themselves present belief in Ahura Mazda as the supreme deity and lord of creation, as well as condemnation of the false Daiva gods, as novel ideas that originate with Zoroaster, and as ideas that broke with existing Iranian pantheism. If we accept that portrayal, then the Achaemenids must have at least been influenced by early Zoroastrianism. All of this is complicated by the general timeline of Iranian migration into the modern national territory of Iran, and the province of Parsa, modern Fars. As we've discussed repeatedly in previous episodes, beginning around 1900 BCE, speakers of the Proto-Indo-Iranian language began migrating south out of Central Asia and into modern Iran. The earliest components of this migration pushed so far east and west that they ended up ruling over northern India, including Pakistan, and modern Syria, in the form of the Mitanni by 1500 BCE. Around that same time, the ancestors of people like the Medes and Persians had just started migrating into Iran. These were people whose language eventually developed into Western Iranian languages, like Old Persian and Parthian and Modern Persian. As Western Iranian might suggest, these guys migrated westward into the Zagros Mountains, where the Assyrians first encountered them and knew them as Medes in the mid-9th century BCE. It would be another century or so after that before these Iranian-speaking migrants finally arrived in the land they would call Parsa. While that migration was happening, the Iranian language speakers that they left behind developed their dialects into the mostly extinct branch of Eastern Iranian languages, which included Old Avestan. Based on linguistic evidence, scholars have spent the last 250 years or so deducing that Avestan was spoken primarily in southern Central Asia, in the ballpark of Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, or Turkmenistan. The region of the ancient provinces of Arya, Bactria, and Margiana. Based on its relationship to the Sanskrit language of the Rigveda, Linguists guess that the oldest form of Avestan, creatively called Old Avestan, was probably spoken from about 1500 to 1000 BCE, and that our surviving examples of Old Avestan probably come from the end of that time frame, between 1200 and 1000 BCE. After that, we get into the younger Avestan language which is used for the majority of Zoroastrian scripture and was in use from about 900 to 400 BC as a spoken language, meaning that the younger Avestan hymns and prayers of Zoroastrianism were still developing in the Achaemenid period, 
Based on locations and linguistics in younger Avestan hymns, the Avestan speakers seem to have spread southward toward Eracosia, roughly modern Sistan. But in all likelihood, Avestan dialects or related languages still stretched north into Central Asia. The timeline is important to understand the debates about Achaemenid practices. Zoroastrians could not have migrated with the early Western Iranians on their way to Media and Parsa because their ancestors started migrating before Zoroaster was probably born, and the bulk of Zoroastrianism's development was in a region and language far away from Parsa. The key is in the old Avestan hymns, the so-called Gathas believed to be the work of Zoroaster himself, composed and passed on orally for centuries. This is where I believe Achaemenid Zoroastrianism really has an argument. Cyrus and Darius could not possibly have been Zoroastrians in the fullest sense of the word, because the full modern corpus of Zoroastrianism may not even have been complete during their lifetimes, let alone codified into something resembling a canon. What they could have known about is the work and life of Zarathustra, the prophet whose name was passed from Persian to Greek to Latin to English as Zoroaster. Sometime around the 12th century BCE, Somewhere in modern Uzbekistan, a priest from the downtrodden pastoralist tribe or clan called the Spitama began to preach a new religious message. That message is at the core of our understanding of Iranian religion, from the departure of the first Aryan migrants and the Vedic hymns, to the arrival of Islam. And of course, it continues to be at the core of Zoroastrianism and its influence to this day. So I think it's probably well past time that I talk about Zoroaster and his message. As in previous episodes, I'll mostly use Zoroaster rather than the Avestan Zarathustra or the Middle Persian Zartasht. Zarathustra is certainly the more accurate and is becoming more common in secondary literature. But for the sake of accessibility, I'm using the Greco-Roman form for now. That said, I'll use Zarathustra interchangeably when it's appropriate, so be aware of that name. The Gothas reveal remarkably little about their composer. Zoroaster was born with the name Zarathustra Spitama. His father was called Porushaspa, and his mother was called Dugdao, all apparently from the Spitama clan. Just from their names, we can see the influence of their pastoral herdsman lifestyle and the region in which they lived. In Avestan, Porushuspa means possessing of gray horses, and Dugdao means literally milkmaid. It's worth remembering that names often mean things literally, and are rarely thought about in their own culture. Names are also frequently influenced by neighboring cultures like Zarathustra's own name. The Zaratath confuses scholars to this day, but Hustra was a proto-Sogdian word for camel. 
That has led some scholars to speculate that Old Avestan had already been relegated to a ceremonial purpose in Zoroaster's lifetime. But we should probably bear in mind that neighboring languages bleed into one another, especially even in the form of names. My own name, Trevor, is a good modern example. It originated as a Welsh surname, but is relatively common in the English-speaking world. We have to guess to explain Zoroaster's life from birth to his first revelation. Based on general traditions of Indo-Iranian cultures, we can guess that he was probably born into or selected for the priesthood early in life. He probably began training around seven years old, and the Gothas inform us that he had many teachers in his early life, and that he left his parents' home around the age of 20. After about a decade of practicing the traditional Iranian polytheism on his own, Zoroaster encountered a being known as Vohumana, the embodiment of good or righteous thought. Vohumana revealed that a single god called Mazda Hura was the supreme power in the universe, responsible for everything being put into its proper place. You'll notice right away that I called the god of Zoroaster's new faith Mazda Ahura rather than Ahura Mazda, and I keep referring to him as just the god or that god. That's because the Gothas do not actually use Ahura Mazda as a name. Zoroaster himself seems to have used Mazda and Ahura as epithets or titles in a way it's very similar to the way that Jews and Christians use the word Lord to describe their god. In conventional translation, Ahura Mazda means the wise lord. Individually, as the Gothas used them, just Mazda probably meant something along the lines of the wise one, and Ahura was a title for benevolent divinities in general. In the Gothas, Ahura can either refer to the Ahura, meaning Ahura Mazda, or the Ahuras more generally, referring to a kind of indistinct multitude of good beings worthy of praise. This seems to have included Ahura Mazda, but also Vohumana, the so-called radiant beings directly addressed in the Gathas, and probably also the plethora of beings identified as Yazada in later scriptures. However, it's unclear how corporeal or directly worshipped Zoroaster intended these other Ahuras to be. By the end of the Old Avestan period, it seems that Ahura Mazda was already being treated as a name for the supreme Ahura, but it was only in the younger Avestan hymns that the order was firmly established as Ahura Mazda rather than Mazda Ahura. Prior to that, they were still used kind of interchangeably. In Persia, the name was gradually slurred so that old Persian texts referred to him as Ahura Mazda, all one word. And by Middle Persian, in the Sassanid period, he was called Hormazd. For clarity's sake, I will continue to use the name Ahura Mazda. 
it isn't clear how much of that was in keeping with established traditions and how much of this was new. It's possible that this god was already the king of the gods in Zoroaster's old religion, and that the idea of him as an omniscient master of the universe was the new invention. Vohumana seems to be unknown to Zoroaster at the start, and is a new being in terms of the Zoroastrian pantheon, at least in comparison to the pre-existing Iranian one. What was definitely new in this revelation was the knowledge of the collection of other radiant beings alongside Vohumana, and the duality of the universe. In later, younger Avestan hymns, Vohumana and six other divine entities are known as the Amesha Spentas, and their names are all literally the concepts that they represent. We've met Good Thought, and in addition, we have the Creative Spirit, Devotion, Fullness, Dominion, and Immortality. These appear as key concepts in the organization of the universe, and thus appear as divine beings to safeguard those concepts. The seventh and most recurring was Asha. Asha is the Avestan word for the best truth, though it might be better understood as the correct divine cosmic order that everything in the universe is supposed to be organized in accordance with. And because saying that every time I want to talk about it is really hard, I'm just going to say Asha. Another thing to notice is that I am not saying Ahura Mazda created the universe. Instead, Ahura Mazda is described as ordering the universe. That's often translated as creating, but it isn't exactly correct. The impression is that Ahura Mazda took the six concepts of the Amesha Spentas and used them as the basis for everything in creation, which was put into place according to the divine order dictated by Asha, which gets complicated when Asha is described as Ahura Mazda's daughter, but divine cosmologies like this always do get a little confused. It gets more unclear, too, when you get into specific things like people, grass, and cows, which do seem to have been created, but the world or the universe itself was not, according to the Gothas. The real world-changing part of Zoroaster's revelation is what happened next. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. 
They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership all 25 languages for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. After the world was put in order by Ahura Mazda, in accordance with Asha, this order was opposed. Asha has a counterpart called Druj, and Druj is very much like an evil twin. Where Asha is translated as the truth, Druj is the lie. As I said earlier, this is a divine cosmic falsehood, while the lie is the literal translation, and what you'll see most often, it's probably best to try and understand Druj as just the opposite of Asha, where everything correct and good and righteous in existence is in accordance with Asha, everything which is not has been corrupted by Druj. And so, like Asha, instead of explaining this every time, I'm just going to call it Druj. In later tradition, the leader of this corruption was Angra Mainyu, the destructive spirit commonly portrayed as the evil twin to Ahura Mazda. And over time, much like Ahura Mazda was slurred into Ormazd, Angra Mainyu became Ariman. However, Angra Mainyu does not appear in the Gothas at all. The individual words in his name are used as destructive and spirit, respectively, but Zoroaster himself talked about Akamanyu, the evil spirit rather than the destructive spirit, and Akemana, evil thought. These are portrayed as the opposites of the creative spirit, Spentamanyu, which may or may not be part of Ahura Mazda in Zoroaster's conception of the universe, and Vohumana, good thought appearing in opposition to evil thought. Over time, Akamanyu, Akemana, and Angramanyu were largely compressed into Angramanyu alone. In the Gathas, it was Akemana, literal evil thoughts, that corrupted the Daiva, which brings us back to Earth and the daily life of Zarathustra Spitama. In the theology of the Gathas, the Daiva are divinities that have been corrupted into following the Druj rather than Asha. 
and they corrupt their followers to do the same. Conveniently, they are also portrayed as the gods of other tribes and groups that attack Zoroaster's people and steal their things. When they weren't able to organize into massive, strong confederations like the Xiongnu or the Mongols or the Huns, steppe tribes spent most of the centuries when they were prominent with violent infighting. And the Gothas reflect this, describing a society in which cattle and horse raids and thefts were all too common and internecine warfare was the rule of the day. Understandably, one of the tenets of Asha was not stealing other people's livelihoods, and the Daiva are portrayed as encouraging these raids. We might understand them as war gods and other gods whose cults thrived when their followers attacked and robbed their neighbors. Ahura Mazda revealed that these were corrupt gods, no longer worthy of praise, and that they and their followers ought to be condemned and converted by Zoroaster and all followers of Asha and the Ahuras. In one of the Gathas, this condemnation of cattle thieves is actually taken a step further. The Kine, the divine spirit of cattle herds, as a concept, laments that Ahura Mazda did not give it an ordered place in the universe during creation. Ahura Mazda thus assigns the Kine, the metaphysical idea of cattle, to the charge of Zoroaster and his people, the followers of Ahura Mazda and adherents to Asha. As a result, not only is the act of stealing their cattle wrong, followers of the Daiva and the Druge, whether they conceived of themselves that way or not, were sinning just by having cattle and not following Ahura Mazda. Fundamentally, especially in this early Bronze Age steppe society, the size of one's herd and the manpower at their disposal were the measures of success and divine favor on the ancient steppe, and the greatest god in the universe assigning the spiritual concept of cattle to Zoroaster's care was the greatest possible sign of divine favor. Armed with these new revelations and religious reforms, Zoroaster went out into the world. In the modern, western, Christian-influenced world, there is a tendency to think of holy people and historical prophets as peaceful figures. Not only is this inaccurate to many of the prophets and teachers of the Abrahamic religions, but it is certainly not the case for Zoroaster. Already in a tribe that dealt with regular raids and conflicts with their neighbors, converting his people to a religion that condemned those neighbors' gods and actions as both unholy and against the natural order of the universe, did not help matters. The Gothas do not directly explain the course of events, but they do allude to it, and later tradition fleshed out the narrative of Zoroaster's later life in much more detail. For years, Zoroaster and his followers were hounded, persecuted, and condemned, by the people and priests of the neighboring tribes and regions. Local rulers and rival priests, called Karapan, hounded and challenged them as they moved around the region, 
evidently traveling from one safe haven to another. Karapan is an interesting word for the rival priests. Traditionally, it is translated as mumblers. Hymns and recited prayers were at the core of Indo-Iranian religion, and Zoroaster calling his rivals Karapan could be interpreted as taking a dig at them. Basically, Zoroaster was saying his rivals were bad poets and couldn't properly say their prayers. In fairness to the Karapans, alternate explanations have been offered, which suggests that mumblers isn't exactly correct, and actually refers to the standard practice of priests quietly reciting verses during sacrifices. In that case, Karapan isn't an insult, just a descriptive word for early Iranian priests. The Karapan are not only portrayed as Zoroaster's rivals, leading worship of the Daiva, but also as ineffective, unable to secure divine blessings for their followers, and corrupt, stealing more than their fair share of the sacrifice for personal use. In contrast to the Karapan, Zoroaster and other righteous leaders in later Zoroastrian communities are called Kawi. Kawi is not used exclusively for religious leaders, and appears to be a title indicating honor in Old Avestan. In the context of the Gathas, Kawi is sometimes translated as poet sacrificer. Quite literally, this refers to someone who recites poems or hymns, like the Gathas, while carrying out a sacrifice, which was standard practice in ancient Indo-Iranian religion. Kawi also just developed an honorific context. When reading about the Gathas, you might see the speaker-slash-author referred to as the poet-sacrificer. Strictly speaking, this is more accurate than attributing them to Zoroaster, as many poet-sacrificers recited and passed on those hymns over the centuries, and the Gothas themselves never claimed to be authored by Zoroaster in their own verses. Despite this, the five Gothas are linguistically consistent enough for scholars to think that they were all written by one person. Whether or not the other author really was Zoroaster is hardly relevant. They have been attributed to to him for millennia, discuss his life, and were composed by an individual. Whether true or not, the composition is de facto by Zarathustra Spitama. Interestingly, the religious practice described in the Gathas is not all that different from Zoroaster's daiva-worshipping counterparts practicing traditional Iranian religion. It seems that Zoroaster reformed the metaphysical beliefs, and which gods were which, more than he reformed how those beliefs manifested in day-to-day -day practice. The primary vehicle for worshipping a god was through sacrifice. Whether that was a Hura Mazda, a Yazata like Mithra, or one of the cursed Daiva, when we hear sacrifice today, we usually think of some kind of bloody offering. But that was not the case for most ancient Iranian offerings. The primary thing sacrificed to Ahura Mazda in the Gathas seems to be dairy products and other foodstuffs. 
yogurt, milk, and cheese were abundant in a world dominated by semi-nomadic herdsmen, and were thus the thing that most people could offer up to their gods. Vegetables, grains, and other things cultivated by pastoralists or brought up by traders would also have been viable options. Then, of course, there were blood sacrifices. In order of significance, goats, sheep, cattle, and horses could all be sacrificed as an offering to a horomazda or some other deity. Ordinarily, part of the animal would be offered to the god, while another portion was kept as the officiant's payment, and in the more extreme cases, like a cow or a horse, some of the meat would likely be given back to the community as food. The ritual of sacrifice was called a maga, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I'm not going to do the emphasis any other way. The one who carried out the sacrifice and said the proper hymns was called a magavan. Apparently, the role of the magavan overlapped with the kawi and the karapan. In all likelihood, the Avestan word magavan and the later Median and Greek word magos as in the magi priests of the Persian Empire, like Gomada, were somehow connected to the Magavan. How directly or indirectly those words are connected is unknown, but in general it seems that the later magi were somehow connected to the Magavan. At different points in the Maga ceremony, worshippers practiced a form of physical homage while offering their prayers, bending their legs and bowing or swaying in a way that scholars think was intended to replicate the movements of a sacred fire. All of this was done in order to further the worshippers' relationship with their god, in the case of Zoroaster and his followers, Ahura Mazda. In the theology of the Gathas and their author, this was not the one-way relationship the major modern monotheistic religions tend to envision, one in which believers worship and follow God's commands in order to receive divine favor. Zoroaster and his followers had a much more reciprocal relationship with their god. The dynamics of worship and sacrifice in the Gathas are almost like a gift exchange governed by firm rules, almost reminiscent of a sort of social contract. The great thing about a religion and a god which are bound to follow a strict sense of universal order is that there are accepted standards. Of course, as the highest being in a clearly hierarchical universal order, Ahura Mazda wouldn't communicate with just anyone. Zoroaster and the poet sacrificers that followed him had to demonstrate, and I will butcher this word, srausha, a readiness to listen to Ahura Mazda's will. This abstract idea of being ready to listen was absolutely key, and in fact, it was so important that srausha later became a yazada in its own right in some of the younger Avestan hymns similar to how Vohumana and Asha are presented as conscious divinities in the Gathas, in addition to abstract concepts. 
Primed and ready to listen, the poet sacrificer entered into an exchange with Ahura Mazda and or the other gods. They recited the hymns and prayers while carrying out a sacrifice of foodstuffs and animals. The worship and sacrifice was the source of a god's immortality. By giving Ahura Mazda, Asha, and the rest their praise and products, the poet sacrificer was revitalizing the gods themselves. In exchange, Ahura Mazda bestows knowledge, favors, and good fortune on the poet sacrificer. These blessings are then passed on to the community. By demonstrating srausha and carrying out a ceremony that actively revitalizes the gods, the poet supposedly had audible and visual contact with the gods and their gift of immortality to the gods, mirrored Ahura Mazda's act of ordering the universe at the dawn of time. This contact with creation was a key piece of knowledge bestowed on the poet, reflecting a deep insight into how Asha worked. Of course, the community at large, in our case Zoroaster's family and followers, participated in the ritual, but they were not in direct contact with Ahura Mazda. Instead, the poet sacrificer had to act as an intercessor between the humans and the divinities. The community's relationship to the poet also reflects the role of Srausha in the poet's relationship to the gods. The Gothas repeatedly use words that share that srau stem, meaning to hear, when describing acts of worship. This makes sense as Gothic worship was centered on hearing and listening to the performance of poetry in the form of hymns and prayers. A fully realized poet sacrificer, imbued with the knowledge and experience that they had received in exchange for bestowing immortality on their gods, would either pass their knowledge on, or more often, secure divine blessings for their people. Thus, humanity was also revitalized as part of this exchange, and at the core was the poet-sacrificer, Zoroaster, ensuring that these gifts passed smoothly between mortal and immortal. Despite this mutual exchange, there was never any doubt that Ahura Mazda is in charge of everything. As the god who organized these rules and principles in the first place, he guides the poet and his followers through this process. Ahura Mazda is described regularly as a shepherd, a being that guides, protects, and cares for the simple creatures in his herd, in this case, humanity. And before you start getting excited about any ideas connected to Christianity, this probably isn't an example of direct influence. Many gods were described as shepherds all over the Bronze Age world because many gods fulfill a similar role of guardian and caretaker. If we search for the root of proper ritual practice, at least according to the Gathas, it ultimately brings us back to Vahumana, good thought, the being who first revealed the nature of the universe to Zoroaster.
But in this case, it's less about him as a conscious being who spoke to Zarathustra and more about the abstract concept he represents. Good thoughts. Thinking about the world in a way that aligns with Asha. That was and is still at the core of Zoroastrian theology. If you wanted to rank the gods or concepts given divine embodiments in the Gathas, Vohumana would be in the top three. Obviously, Ahura Mazda himself and Asha are the top two. Ahura Mazda is the supreme being, and Asha is the standard used to define good and correct for literally everything else. After them, we find Vohumana, the root cause of everything that happens in accordance with Ahura Mazda and Asha. Twice, the Gathas repeat the mantra that remains a key component of Zoroastrianism today. Once in Yasna 35 verse 2, and again in Yasna 36. Humata, Hukta, Huarshata. Good thoughts, good words, good actions. A good state of mind leads people to speaking good words and performing good deeds. That is, words and deeds that are in line with Asha. And what is a ritual sacrifice if not a performance of words and actions? Ergo, a good state of mind is the foundation for the continuing cycle of sacrifice and revitalization at the core of early Zoroastrian Gothic worship. Now you'll notice that I just keep going here. And this episode has dragged on to be rather long. Now is, I think, a good time for a break because the subject of the state of mind brings me to one of the densest, most confusing, and most interesting aspects of Zoroaster's cosmology and theology. The Zoroastrian conception of reality. That is just as confusing a topic as it sounds, and I'm yet to find a source or a commentary that really does it justice. I have no doubt that I'll butcher important parts of it while I try to explain all of this in a short podcast format, but I feel like I have to just because it's so damn interesting. In fact, the Zoroastrian idea of the state of mind is one of the things that drew me into studying ancient Iran in the first place. But I think that's where we will have to pick up on Thursday in episode 44. In that episode, I will resume right where I left off, talking about the concept of reality and the state of mind as based in Vohumana. Until then, if you want more information, you can go to the podcast's website, historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you can find things like the Achaemenid Family Tree, my bibliography, and the support page for the podcast, where you can find different ways to financially support this project, including links to Patreon to go over and listen to my rendition of the Gothas. You can also support the show by finding us on social media, History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at History of Persia on Twitter, and sharing it with everybody you know. Telling people about a podcast like this is the absolute best way to help it grow and find wider audience. You can also just leave a review. I'm always excited to hear your feedback. 
and you can do it on any platform where you leave podcast reviews. Apple, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, they all have good ones now. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.